I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Patrick Hilkar, PhD and author of Leading an Emotionally Intelligent Life, Expanding Your your EI to Make Courageous Decisions and Transform Your Life. Emotional intelligence is the secret to unlocking personal transformation and reaching everyone's full potential. So why are there so few personal guides on how to do it? Enter Dr. Patrick Kilcar, who has dedicated his life to studying and teaching EI. He offers everyone an extraordinary guide to solving the problem of how to unlock EI within us at the individual level, rather than waiting for someone with leadership skills to do so. Drawing on his extensive experience in the field, he closes the gap between what is written about emotional intelligence and demonstrates what it looks and feels like to achieve and maintain it, especially if our formative years were paved with drama, trauma, and disappointment. He's been the director of Georgetown University Center for Personal Development since 1999 and has co-authored the award-winning book, Voices from Fatherhood, Fathers, Sons, and ADHD. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Patrick. Uh, It's wonderful to be here, Catherine. Thank you so much. I have a question. Uh, You know, IQ is like a household word. Everybody knows what IQ or has heard of IQ. Okay, but not everybody has heard of EI. So why haven't we? Emotional intelligence doesn't really get the, the, I'm going to say that, I don't like to use the word hype, but it, it doesn't, really doesn't roll get, off your tongue. It doesn't roll <laughs> off your tongue. And some people will say, well, what is EI anyway? And what does it do? No, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, people have also asked, is EI really something new? And no, I mean, it's been called many things over time, um, you know, since the turn of last, last century. But the EI piece, the emotional intelligence, it really kind of came to our consciousness in 1995 when Dan Goleman wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, and put it out there. And it was written very well. It was written for, you know, the every person, not just for those in the clinical world. And it showed that there's this thing that's happening in our life that really does, in in many ways, transcend our IQ. And it transcends it in that, you know, who are the people that really experience a great deal of rounded success in their life? And when they began to look, it's people that are not only smart or, or ingenious or clever, but people that really have solid social skills and, along with the social skills, have solid ability to understand not only their emotions, but the emotions of the people around them. So in other words, these people, the ones you're talking about, solid emotional skills, they're more well-balanced. They may be very bright. Maybe they're not the, the, the you know, way, you know, have the highest IQ necessarily. That's not what we're talking about. And they make, right. good, they make good choices. They are able they, to make good yeah. choices. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so. You know, there's a saying that IQ gets you in the door, EQ keeps you there. And the EQ being the emotional quotient. And it's important in that everybody listening to this, and you and me, Catherine, we we know people in our life that manage stress really well. And stress is that culprit that kind of invades us, and then it comes out in various different ways. Either we withdraw, we become angry, we become edgy, we become silent. 
I mean, stress does a lot of things to all of us. And the people that live with fairly robust emotional intelligence, not that they experience stress differently. Um, they don't. They just choose to do, um, to act differently or do things differently with the stress that they experience. They don't foist it onto someone else. They don't dump it. They recognize it. And they also recognize it in someone else. I saw this situation happen the other day that I thought was remarkable, where on George on campus, somebody saw somebody walking down the street and started pretty much yelling at them, uh, they, and they knew each other. And I'm kind of watching this, and then the person that was being yelled at said to the person exactly this, hey, Bob, <clears throat> I know that you're upset about this, and I'm not 100% sure what it is, but I assure you I'm going to find out and let you know. And at that moment, this guy, Bob, you could see just all of a sudden the the tension reduced. You could see this stuff leaving his body and all of that worked up stuff um, disappeared. And, And what would it have looked like, though, if this guy talking to him met him with that same level of aggression, that same level of anger? It just would have continued. But this guy, and I don't even knowingly, but really was able to bring that tension down to zero. So instead of escalating the conversation, he de-escalated. I think that uh, members of Congress perhaps should have that (laughs) (laughs) skill. (laughs) It would do well for all of us. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I have a question because I want to bring this into what's happening right now today because I thought about this when I was uh, thinking about doing our interview and it's like this uh, submersible and this company that has decided to go down and uh, view the Titanic. Okay, all these, I'm assuming, I'm making the assumption that all these, I think they're all men, happen to be really highly intelligent people, right? But what about their EI? Yeah, their emotional intelligence. How did that play in to make the decision to do what they're doing when they've been told that there there was some concerns about the technology, a lot of concerns about doing what they are doing, trying to go down 13,000 feet in the ocean? How does that fit into that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, in in this little teeny submersible, and that it plays into it in a large way. And that this is somewhat of a complicated issue. However, when people are exceedingly smart, and they are CEOs, or they've you know crafted this whole new business, which um, OceanGate going down to the Titanic, I would imagine is a pretty new business, and. They see that there are potential issues. However, it could be hubris where they they just so believe in what they're doing that the thought of something negative happening or something life alter happening or something which can really just take away these lives. They 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 know it exists, but they look at it and they say, no, you know what? We have the contingencies. Now, you're bringing up a really interesting point that let's say that these forged engineers are having this conversation before the submersible actually goes and and does this kind of uh, swim around the Titanic. And someone says, no, I I realize there are risks, but we're going to mitigate the risk this way. And that one of the four people are listening, and they know that's not correct. They know there's something about that that calculus that doesn't make sense and, in fact, is not really being well thought out. It depends on the group. However, 
if this person feels more junior to whoever is speaking, let's say it's the CEO and this is the second in command or whatever the case may be, that at that moment, they may hold that information and not say it. And the fear is an emotional fear. Would I be yelled at? Would I be demoted? Would I be made to look foolish in front of these other people? And it, it's, it is along that notion or line of groupthink that, that's out there in the clinical world, and it's a big issue and so forth. If someone really, they're, they're connected to their emotional intelligence. And, you know, the book that's out there now that I just wrote about leading an emotionally intelligent life we look at these 15 competencies that exist in everybody that walks on this earth. And those 15 competencies, if they're really in line and they're fairly strong, that the likelihood of somebody not saying something is fairly remote. But it, if there's a piece where um, emotional independence, for instance, and I think that's what you're talking about here, emotional independence is no matter what's going on, I'm going to say what I need to say because of what's happening. <clears throat> or if I'm, let's say, the CEO, I'm going to listen to what everybody is saying, put that into the mix, and then make a decision based on it. Strong emotional intelligence with regard to emotional independence, that, that's that moment where that person in terms of emotional independence is not terribly strong. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And so... It makes a lot of sense. So then can we talk about, as you say in the book, that you're talking about 15 competencies? Can we, let's yes. discuss some of those. We were not, maybe not all 15 we can't get to, but yeah, and the impact it has on our emotional intelligence. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give an example that I had a woman um, come to see me clinically a few years ago. And she came in very together, very smart, very charming. <clears throat> and she said, you know, I have really good friends. I'm doing well in the world. Something isn't working. And we talked about it for a while. And then she took the EQI. And when the results of the EQI came back, page three or page four of the comprehensive report, it's this visual makeup of, of these 15 competencies. And what I saw immediately and then kind of put it together and pointed out to her that one of the competencies is emotional self-awareness. How aware am I, Patrick, of my emotions when I'm experiencing them? What's going on? <clears throat> so her emotional self-awareness was really high. But then below that was emotional self-expression, which was really low. So she has all these feelings, right? Yeah. And she's, she's aware of these feelings and she's not talking about it. And then you go farther down and then you see stress tolerance was exceedingly high. In fact, it was her highest. And there are times where one of these competencies, if we overutilize it, it can be a negative thing rather than a positive thing. And this was negative for her, having really high stress tolerance. And then her second highest was social relationships, interpersonal relationships were high. So I looked at that and I shared that with her. And, and this is what happened where she looked at it and you, she just began to well up. The first time she'd ever cried, the two of us talking. And what she saw was that she has these big feelings about a lot of things. <clears throat> she doesn't talk with her friends. 
she carries all of her friend stuff. Everybody comes to her. She's that, you know, within a friend group, she's the resident therapist that everybody goes to. And that she carries this stuff without ever saying a word to the point where it was just emotionally exsanguinating her. And she realized that she kind of saw herself as a human doormat. Everybody walked over, everybody wiped their shoes off on her. And that was kind of her role where she had no one to talk to. And so the transformation for this woman is that she began to turn this around fairly dramatically and was no longer available constantly to hear other people's stuff, found a good friend who she could begin to talk to. And it was really difficult for her to do that, by the way. That's not a role that she's been in. So in actually talking to someone, sharing, because everybody saw her as this superstar, you know, she never has any problems. And then, of course, that's not true. It's not true of anybody. So that's how these four specific competencies interplay. And, And imagine this, that there's a little mobile hanging from the ceiling, you know, like the little mobiles that little babies have, and they kind of, they, they just move around so gently above them. And let's imagine there are 15 pieces to this mobile. Well, if you touch one, what happens? Everything moves. And so focusing in on one of these competencies and talking about how to do that will then, by its very nature, begin to affect all of them. So they're helpful? all... Yes, that's helpful. They're all connected. And getting back to this example you gave of this woman. So was there a trauma that happened in her childhood? I mean, do you get that caused her to feel that she had to take on everybody else's problem and be the superstar, as you say, you know, that she could handle everything? Absolutely. I mean, ask like a true clinician. I mean, you're beautiful because (laughs) yes. So her mother died when she was eight. She was the oldest. And what happened? She began to do everything. She was eight. And then all of a sudden, by the time she was 10, she was a full-on adult, taking care of her younger siblings, taking care of her dad. And again, it's not that this was manufactured. It's a role that, that she kind of fell into. And it's a role that she'd been in consistently up to that moment in time. And it's remarkable to see somebody go, you know what? I don't want to live my life this way anymore. And to truly shift it and change it. And in the book, the book is just full of these remarkable stories of people like you and me, just people in the world that finally go enough. You know, I'm not going to carry around this stuff that either was foisted upon me or I had to live through or whatever the case may be. They decided to really say, look, I'm not 12 anymore. I'm 32 or I'm 22 or I'm whatever the case may be. And I have agency. I can truly choose how I want to go through this world. And it's remarkable to see that whole transformation. And and I think that's probably true for any clinician in working with people where you see these, these type of changes are just incredible. Patrick, what inspired you to become the leader in emotional intelligence? I mean, what happened? I'm assuming something um, had some impact on you in your life that you, oh, wow, you know, this is something that this, I have a passion for this and I'm going to become a leader in this field. Great question. 13 years ago, I was in a workshop 
<clears throat> and at a conference. And this woman was talking about the EQI, for which I've never heard before. And I'm sitting there, and she's beginning to talk about it. She's talking about the competencies. She's talking about these composites. And the composite, for instance, um, interpersonal relationships is a composite under which fall three competencies. And she's going into this and talking about it. It's really intriguing. But then she brings in these two very specific um, case studies and starts going through them. And I'm listening and I'm going, this, this is really remarkable. Now, not from a clinical perspective, because the EQI, as I talk about in the book and just talk about in general, the EQI is really an instrument that was built for the classroom or the boardroom, you know, for organizational America. And to go in and to really enhance team interaction, people understanding themselves better, understanding how they operate within their own emotions better, and in understanding that, being able to be the, the kind of team player um, that they would want to be or other people would want them to be. <clears throat> and I just thought this was really remarkable. And so I talked with this person after. Um, she invited me to have a conversation with Steve Stein, who's the CEO of multi-health systems, uh, a company in Toronto that puts out all kinds of really wonderful assessments and so forth. And he invited to bring me in and, and train me, he trained me for a week to do, take the EQI, bring it out to school. So to, to bring it to colleges and universities and do the training. And so nine years ago, a student, um, there was a graduate student in a program that I was giving at Georgetown and he came in and he said, Hey, can I take the EQI? And I said, sure. So he came in, he took the EQI and that began discovering the power of the EQI in the clinical session in the clinical moment. And, and then it just has evolved from there until my wife during the pandemic said, you know, you, you really should write this up. I mean, this is, this is really good stuff. And so I did and it, and it, it's just in a, it's a tool that I don't know if other people are using it clinically or not. I mean, ultimately, my idea is to do trainings where I train clinicians to be able to bring this into to their clinical environment and offer it to, to clients in a way that may or may not make sense to them. Give us some practice. I mean, your wife, obviously, for making that uh, assumption, she has a good EQI or an excellent one, I guess. Uh, no, she <laughs> she's doesn't. on the right track. Uh, practical tips <laughs> for us to develop the EQI in our everyday life. What can we do? Well, great question, because, you know, you don't have to read books. You don't have to get my book. You don't have to take the EQI. It's to take five minutes. 10 minutes of your life, and this is the important part, when you feel that you're getting angry. Now, I don't mean when you're in the midst of anger. It's more like this. You put your ear to the train track, okay? You can't see the train. You can't hear the train, but you feel the vibration, so it's coming. And I think most of us have that ability to really see the churn that's occurring as we move toward getting angry. And as we're thinking about this, you know, so what do we usually do when we do get angry? Do we confront? Do we withdraw? Most of us, 
in this world withdraw when we're angry. And then in that withdraw and kind of chewing on it, it then finds its way back out in some passive aggressive kind of situation. But it's being able to really evaluate what do I do with my emotions, number one. And when I see other people in an emotional state, what do I do? If I see my son who hurt his toe and he's on the ground and he's crying, do I go over to help or do I just look at him and say, okay, okay he's going to get better? I mean, what, what do I do when I see other people who maybe are struggling, maybe in pain, maybe in this place of doubt? And it's being able to, to get a sense of, okay, where am I at this moment with the way that I meet things out emotionally? And if I tend to withdraw, is that what I want to do? And if I, if I didn't withdraw, so instead of becoming angry, you know, like that, that situation I talked about, these two guys where one was angry and one chose not to be, um, what, what would it be like if I entered into that moment differently? If I didn't get mad, if with my spouse or my partner or whatever the case may be, if I didn't blow up, if I actually listened, or if I was really mad, instead of withdrawing, instead of blowing up, I said to the person, look, I want to share with you, when you do this, it really gets me going, gets me upset. I don't want to be, and I want to share it with you. Is being able to acknowledge when we're experiencing something, when we're feeling something. And, you know, that's where IQ makes no difference. That you, you could be the smartest person in the world or the person who just didn't really get that big intelligence gene pool. doesn't matter. We all experience feelings, and that being able to kind of recognize what I do with those feelings and how, and what I, and how what I do with it, how does it impact the people around me, my friends, my kids, whatever the case may be, and if I were to shift or change it, what would happen? I have a question for you. This is a one sure. of my personal issues. I live in. Uh, New York City, most of, much of the time. And I go to theater right. a lot, all the time. I like to go to theater. And I find right. that nine times out of 10 when I'm sitting there, even though uh, the audience is told not to use cell phones, not to turn them on, the light bothers the audience, right. it bothers everybody, or not to talk. Yeah. And <clears throat> of course, yeah. everybody, it seems to me, and they, I always feel like they're sitting right Somehow I've chosen the seat where everybody is talking and on their cell phones <laughs> and I get and feel as you're describing it really angry. What do you do in right. that kind of a situation? And you, we have well, three minutes left. So you have to, yeah. Right. I know. So, so here's what you do. You go, hey, excuse me, could you not turn that on because it just gets in the way. So you, you do it politely, but then often what does happen? The person catches an attitude or they get grumpy or, I mean, every now and then you have to say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. But usually that somebody cops an attitude because they've been caught doing something they know they're not supposed to, or they're being asked to change a behavior that they're not supposed to be uh, employing at that moment. And it, it's, you, what do you do when, when really there's nothing you can do, is kind of what you're saying. Is yes. What I do, I breathe. I, honest to God, I do the kind of breathing we do in yoga. I breathe through my nose deeply. I feel my lungs expand, my diaphragm expand. I hold it for a second. Then I exhale through my mouth. And when I exhale, I just send out with it any of the feelings that I'm harboring that aren't good or positive or holding me back. 
sometimes I do it a lot. Uh, that's a great answer. And I will try that. I will do that next time because I'm going to have a lot of opportunities. I know already to be. Yeah, able to, I know. Yeah. I know. It, it's re- it's such a pain. I, I hear yeah. exactly what you're saying. But the breathing is just really beautiful and wonderful. And it yeah. does work. You know, I do it with my kids all the time. Yeah. And I have control over the breathing. I don't have control over what they're going to do or not going to do. No. Uh, great no, conversation. Exactly I love right. it. I just want to mention the book again, uh, Leading an Emotionally Intelligent Life, Expanding Your EI to Make Courageous Decisions and Transform Your Life. And I've been talking to Patrick Hilkar, PhD. So Patrick, give us information about, you know, where we can go to read the book, listen to the book on Audible and or uh, also to kind of follow you to follow your work. Uh, Yeah, You're great. Um, It's on Amazon. <clears throat> and Rowan and Littlefield are the publisher. And there's a, the eilife.com is my website. And, or just directly to me, Kilcarp, K-I-L-D-A-R-R-P at georgetown.edu. Throw me a note. If you read the book, what do you think? And what I need to be thinking about more than what I am thinking about now. And Catherine, I can't thank you enough. This is really wonderful. Great. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 